If you're new to us, uh, we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we're now in Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll uh, work through uh, verses 14 through 21. If you have your Bibles, I'll give you a few moments to turn to it, and um, also, if you have a Bible, just keep your, keep your hand there. At one point in the sermon, I'm going to kind of call us to look at a few other passages uh, in chapter 4 and 5, but uh, just Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask now that you would uh, bless us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would meet with us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be exalted amongst us. And that as we listen and preach and pray and worship, that you would uh, bless us. That if, if, if you do not empower our hearing, we listen in vain. If you do not empower my preaching, I do it in vain. And so, Jesus, we need you now to speak with and commune with your people that your name might be exalted. Amen. So there's, there's one major rule in real estate. It's number one rule that when you're selling a home or valuing a piece of property, that location, 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 it matters. That, that, that the what, or, or in terms of the value of the home, is uniquely tied to where it's located that is inescapable. I want to make the case to you this morning that our passage, in my opinion, functions the same way, that, that before we get into what it is and how it's functioning, you have to see where it's located. The location of this passage is remarkable. That if you've been with us, then you know where we've been in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. And if you haven't, I want to jog your memory. Notice in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Even before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Yep, your father did that. That in love, he predestined us. He's adopted us into the family of God. And we are co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we've been sealed, according to Paul, by the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment and our hope for all things to come. The Lord Jesus has done this. And when, what were we doing? Paul says, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked after the way of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is now at work in sons of disobedience. You were by nature children of wrath, is what God says. But God, being rich in mercy, for the love with which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not according to works, so that no man may boast before the Lord. You see? And what is God's great mystery? His mystery is the church hidden for ages, now revealed that God would be reconciling all people, all races, all tribes, all colors, all ethnicities, all nationalities, all socioeconomic backgrounds to himself and then to each other, and we would live in harmony in the church. We're a new people. We're a new type of people, a new creation. This is all that God has done. Notice there was very little of what you need to do in the first three chapters, it was all God has done it, God has done it, God has done it. And then there's a switch. There's a switch right after uh, in chapters four through the rest of the book that I can't read Ephesians four to the end of the book without that song, Walk It Out. Some of y'all know the song. <laughs> like like I, I, cannot, I cannot read Ephesians four on without like hearing Andre 3000 in the background, right? But notice, I'll give you a few verses. Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Ephesians 4, 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2, therefore as imitators of God, as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the light. Walk as children in the light. Ephesians 5, 15, look carefully how you walk, not as the unwise, but wise, making best use of the time because the days of evil. In other words, Ephesians 1 through 3, God has done all of these things. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, now walk it out. Now live like it. And right in the middle of those two beautiful passages is this passage. It's, it's a golden link in the chain. If you were to put a chain up in the chain, the first link would be God. God has done this. The spirit has done this. Christ has done this. And the last part of the chain will be live like it, walk like it. And right in the middle, there's a golden link. And it's our passage. The where matters. The where this passage is located matters. Paul is landing the plane of what God has done, and he's about to take it off and tell them this is how you live. But before you take off and live, we got to stop and do this. See, it's one thing to say God has changed us and called us out of darkness. That's one part of it. The other part of it is you got to go live like it. The rubber has to hit the road. He's called you out of darkness, and now he says, go walk in light. How in the world can people who've lived 20, 30, 40, 50 years in darkness, does God think that just meeting Jesus in this one experience is going to change the rest of their lives? Can they really change? I think that's what's behind the prayer. Can the people that you have saved really, really live like this? Can they do this? Maybe that's you this morning, and you have besetting sins that are eating you alive, and you're wondering, can I change? Maybe you're parenting children, and you're wondering, can they change? 
Maybe you're in a marriage and it's really tough. And you're saying to yourself, I I know the information and the content of the gospel, but there is no way that the Lord can redeem this. I want to say, no, that's wrong. Christians can change. Christians will change. You can change. You can be a better version of yourself as God intended it. Or the gospel has been robbed of its power. If it's just to give you bygone grace to save you from hell and it does not speak into our here and now, we are robbing the gospel of its power. And so the question is, can you change? Can people change? And Paul says, yes. Now, I think our passage is showing us how lasting change begins. He's showing us where lasting change begins. And he's showing us when this change will begin to happen. The first thing is, is how does lasting change begin? It begins with prayer. That if you notice Paul's model, he's modeling something for us. He's preached the gospel to the church in Ephesus when he went to Ephesus in Acts. And they responded with faith and repentance. And then he's writing them this letter from prison. And notice how he starts the first three chapters of Ephesians. He does not start with conduct. He starts with what God has accomplished already for you on the cross. He he starts there. And after he gets with all God has done, then he falls to his knees. And then he prays to the father in heaven from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's praying to the father who has engrafted people from every nation and tribe and tongue and ages to himself. And we are now one family in Christ. He says, I bow before that father and pray, though I am in prison and I can't come and see you. I am not in prison from talking to my father. And so Paul drops to his knees to pray before he says a word to them about what to do. He drops to his knees to pray. Now, why would he bow his knees here? I think on the one hand, it's reverence or gratitude for chapters one through three. God has done some amazing things. And Paul is floored. He is enamored so much so that in a prison cell, he, he bows to his knees. And reverence. One of my favorite scenes in Lion King is the first one of the first scenes. And uh, Mufasa and Sarabi, they've had a a son and that son is Simba. And they're just kind of glowing over their son. Mufasa's kind of walking out on Pride Rock with his chest up and the wind is blowing. His mane is running. And then you see all these other animals galloping. You see zebras and giraffe and elephant. You see birds flying, ants crawling, and all of these animals make their way to Pride Rock. And then Rafiki, the little, what is he, a monkey? He kind of walks through and he, he, he goes and gets Simba and he takes Simba and he puts him and he presents him on the corner of Pride Rock before everybody and all the animals. They just do this right here, right? They just bow right there in front of this new king. Now, here's the thing. Simba's done nothing yet. He's done nothing. And yet the whole animal kingdom knows that our king has come and they bow. 
that that's what's happening in our text. Paul knows that Christ has done something. He knows that royalty is in his midst. He knows that he's been adopted into the household of God, that God's promises are grand and yes and amen in Christ. And so he bows his knees in worship. But I don't think he's only bowing because of what God has done. I think this need for future grace, I think he feels that. You see, because of where this prayer is located and because of what Paul is about to call them to do, he's going to call people who have been racist and living separate lives. He's going to call them to unity. He's going to call people who have been stealing and not working honest jobs to get a job, not just to make money for you, but to give to other people. He's going to be calling people who are using corrupting speech in and among their culture to not do that. He's going to be calling husbands who have lorded authority over their wives to stop doing it, to lay down your life and die. He's going to be calling wives who want to usurp their husband's authority. He says, no, honor and respect him. He's about to put some hard commandments on people, and he knows, oh, my God, this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. We don't just need bygone grace that saved us from sin. Lord Jesus, we need grace now to empower and infuse our obedience. So therefore, this gratitude of what God's done in the past and this sense of dependency for future grace, these things are colliding right here. And the Apostle Paul drops to his knees to pray. Now, you might not think that these two feelings can coexist, right? This, this, this gratitude and fear or this gratitude and need but there's a, a, an organization in Florida that, that studied this phenomenon with prisoners. That prisoners who have been incarcerated for 10, 12, 20 years, um, and they particularly work with people who they think are falsely accused. And after they've interviewed person after person, they ask them, how do you feel about being released? And on the one hand, these prisoners are ecstatic. I get to go home. I get to be free. I get to work. I get to, 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 to walk around and not have these people telling me when to eat and when to go to the restroom and when to go to sleep. There's joy. But every single prisoner to the man also expresses fear. My wife, man, she left me 10 years ago. My kids, they want nothing to do with me. Now look at my record. Who, who's going to hire me? That where am I going to live? That these prisoners admit to this duality. They're, they're, they're gracious. I mean, they're thankful for being free. But on the other hand, they, they, they're afraid because they know what this means. That as a free man, I have to go live in this society that I've been alienated. And I think that's what Paul is after right here. On the one hand, what he's done is beautiful. But on the other hand, if God is really holy and he really hates sin and he really calls us to live differently, then they can be terrifying. Now, thankfully, this same organization, they don't just work to get prisoners out. They're not just there to, to get you out. They're there when you are released and they help you get reintroduced to society and they help you get jobs and they help you get reacquainted with your family. You see, which view of God do you have? Do you think that God is just trying to get you a get out of hell free card? And then he's like, OK, it's only it's up to you right now. Or do you think the same God who has freed you from your sin 
is also there for you when you walk out of those prison bars to walk you into glory. And Paul says, our God is like that. Now, we know he's like that because look at what he says. Look at verse 20 through 21. Now to him, this is all a part of his prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. In other words, Paul is perplexed. On the one hand, you've done some amazing things, but also, also you are able to keep it up and keep going. Think about it. We hear about people who have ability but no power. Ability might be stifled by their own limitations. I still think Lynn Bias might have been better than Michael Jordan. Had he been given a chance, ability and talent, no power to conquer that addiction. How many times do people have power and connections, but they lack ability? They can ascend to a job or a calling, but they lack the ability to do the work. This is not the father. And then Paul blows us out of the water. He says the father is able and powerfully powerful not to merely do what we ask, but to do more than what we can ask. Not to do what we can think of, but more than what we can think of. And then he keeps on going. And the, fa the father's power is not limited to time and space it says that throughout all generations, age to age, he's the same. 10,000 years, the father will still be this way. And so the question is, can people change? Yes. Why? Because the grace that saved you and the God who saved you is the God who promises to keep on working in your life. Can Christians experience victory over sin and be conformed to the image of Christ? The answer is yes. The Father is willing and able and powerful and capable. So why does Paul pray then? Why, why, why a prayer between what God has done and what you're about to do? Because is there anything more that relinquishes our ability to change people? Is there anything out there that puts people back into the hands of who the one who can truly change? So Paul, what he does is he prays, right? He prays and he lifts these people back up to the father. He's lifting us up to the father and basically saying, father, I can't change them and I can't fix them. But you can think of all the ways that we try to change people with our anger. And James says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. With Twitter wars and Facebook wars, do we really think we're changing hearts by arguing our position all day long on social media? It does not change the heart of a person. Shame and guilt, do we really think shame and guilt can change a heart? What about rocked discipline? I'll just do this myself. It doesn't work because if it does work, then you're prideful because you're more holier than people. And what you've sought to do by your own discipline has actually turned into something that you're prideful about. You see, prayer. Prayer. Lifting people up to the Lord, lifting yourself up, your real self up to the Lord. 
that sometimes if we want to see changed lives, Paul says it begins with bowed knees. Think about it. When Jesus tells Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. What does he say? I pray for you. What does James tell people who are sick in the church? He says, call the elders. Let them lay hands on you. Let them anoint you with oil and let them pray for you. What does Paul tell Timothy? I desire you to pray for people in high places, rulers and kingdoms that people may live a peaceful and godly life. Do you see what scripture is saying? That the, the, the way the world is changed, the way human hearts is changed, it's not just through human effort. It's through the power and work of the father. And so instead of complaining and being angry and growing frustrated, the father is saying, just bring it to me. I can do it. Where does lasting change begin? I'll get to that here in a second. Now, what do we know thus far in the letter, right? We know that God is powerful and able. We, we, we just read that. We also know where Paul is going with the letter. If, you, if you've read 1 Corinthians, it, 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 it reads as if Paul gets a list of things going on in the church. And when he starts to write, he says, about this, okay, I got that done. About this, all right, we got that done. Ephesians reads the same way. In Ephesians 1, 15, Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for towards all the saints. And so there's communication happening with somebody on the outside and they're relaying to Paul what's happening out there. And so when he pens his letter, he already knows what's happening in the church. And so right here, he already knows that they're not loving their wives correctly. He already knows that there's division in the church. He already knows that there are thieves in the church. He already knows these things. And you would think, knowing that God is powerful and able and far more willingly and abundantly to do more than we could ask or think, and where he's about to command them, you would think that Paul would say, I'm praying. I'm praying that you would be a better husband. I'm praying that you would be a better wife. I'm praying that you would get a job. Read this prayer. He hits this Allen Iverson crossover on us right here, right? We think he's going to go this way and kind of pray for outward conduct. And he crosses us back over and says, no, I'm praying for something deeper. Notice what he says. You know where he's going to go with the rest of the letter. And notice what he says when I pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before my father. Look at verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Whoa. Wait a minute. You about to tell me to do some outward things, but that's not what you're praying for right here. You're praying for the inner being. Now, why would Paul say that? Why would he juke us that way and start praying with the inner being, the inner man? Why not start with Lord? Help them with their tongues. Help them with their, their, their behavior. Help them with their hands. Why does he go inner first? It's not that those future outward behaviors he will call them to are not worth praying for. But he's letting us in on a profound truth. The only way we will do the outward things that Paul is going to call us to is if the inner man and inner woman is strengthened. Amen. The gospel goes inside out. 
He is not just about behavior modification. He is about behavior transformation that flows in the heart first. Because if God has the heart, he has the rest of you. If he has the heart, he has all of you. And so Paul does not pray for these externals here. He prays right here. Lord, strengthen their inner man. Now, what is he talking about, this inner man stuff? He uses this phrase three times. He uses it in the passage that, that, that Anthony read in 2 Corinthians. Our outer man is wasting away, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. You hear that? Outer man, inner man. He uses it in, in, in Romans 7, 22. I delight in the law of God in my inner man, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And notice how he, he equates the mind with the inner man. And so in the Hebrew mindset, there, there, there was a twofold division of a person that, 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 that God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and the Lord God breathed into him. And the scriptures say he became a living soul, a living being. And so when we talk about being alive and the inner man, according to Paul, it's this it's our minds and our hearts and our wills and our affections. Now, there's an outer man and the outer man is your body. Right. It is your eyes. It is your members, as Jesus and Paul would also say. And so here's the beautiful thing that Paul is saying in Second Corinthians. Your outer man is wasting away, but your inner man is being renewed day by day. What is he saying? You're going to grow old and you'll lose your balance. I just visited one of our members who's a senior citizen and she's been falling a lot lately. And she knows the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed by the grace of God day by day. You can die that, that you will lose your sight and you will lose your hair. And we will lose our hearing and we will lose our sense of taste that our bodies are wasting away. But there is, is a part of us that can be renewed day by day. We can age gracefully, says Paul. That's what Peter is after. He says, women, do not adorn yourself with external beauty, with the braiding of hair and fine clothes. He says the beauty is the inward of the, the posture of the heart. You see? And so Jesus would say things like, if your eye is clean, then your whole body is clean. If your eye is dark, then your whole body is dark. What is he getting at? He is saying that, 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 that we believe in a twofold distinction, the outer man, and we believe in members, that, that, that Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter into heaven without a member than to burn in hell. What is he talking about? That that eye, your eyes that we can use to lust or your hands that we can use to steal or your tongues that can be set afire in James and just run amok on a lot of stuff. He's saying that, look, that's the outward stuff, the members. And there's a correlation between what we do outwardly with what's going on right here. You get it? That the real problem with a snappy tongue is not your tongue, it's your heart is snappy. The real problem with, with, with lust is not the eyeball and the eye socket, but your heart is lustful. 
The real problem with, with stealing is not your hand that's just, just, just doing it automatically, but there's a thievery there in your heart, right? That's the point, that the real problem is not out here. The real problem is right here. And so when Paul says, I pray that your inner man would be strengthened, why does he say that? Because if this inner man or if our hearts and our minds are in a line and strengthened by the grace of God, then you know what God has? He has everything else about us. You get it? Where does real change begin? It does not begin with behavior modification. It begins with inward heart change towards the Father. Now think about all the ways in which we want people to change and how we bring it about, right? That if we see someone who loses their temper, we quickly run. Hey, don't lose your temper. Count to 10 and don't lose it. And you know what we're never getting at? We're never getting at what, what's controlling you? What, what, what's under that? If somebody is an alcoholic, we, we want the outward, don't drink and, and don't do these things. And those are good external things. But the question beneath it is, what are we numbing? What are we running from? What are we running to? You see how it works? That when we hear, we call somebody a racist and, and we think, hey, just don't tweet racist stuff or just don't say racist things. The problem isn't the finger. It isn't the words. The problem is the heart that in their heart, they have set up a, a, an identity, something where they actually think there is dignity in a person because of skin color or race or creed or how much money you have. The problem is never what's coming out. The root problem is always what's in there that you don't see people created in the image of God given dignity and worth regardless of how they look, regardless of where they're from, regardless of how much money they have. And your race or my race or my skin color is not superior to any others that were all created in the image of God. And because of that, there is equal dignity and worth right there. You get it? It's not what's coming out. That's the problem. It's what's in here that's the problem. It's like that with every single sin that we commit, it's always a heart issue before it is a behavioral issue. Amen. And so Paul says, I want your heart. That's what I want. Because if God has your heart, he has your tongue. If God has your heart, he has your eyes. If God has your heart, he has you being in a place of compassion. If God has your heart, he has your conduct in your home with how you treat your wife. If God has your heart, he has your conduct with how you talk to your kids. If God has your heart, you will image him and go and work and not just work to be wealthy, but you will work and be generous. If God has the heart, every other command that I will lay on it will sink into it and it will be a joy for your soul. That's why he prays for the heart first. Because that's where real and lasting change begins. The last question is, when will lasting change happen? When God's abundant love floods you in the innermost part of who you are. When his love floods it and it drives stuff 
out that shouldn't be there. Now, up to this point, we've talked about God's ability, his abundant ability, his abundant resources that he has at his disposal. But how do we know that we won't have this, this, you know, I don't know if you kept up with what happened when Puerto Rico was ravaged by the storm. But there were two stories that were on CNN, and one was about the 10,000 shipping containers that were just stuck at the port. And they were just there, clothes, food, medicine. They were just stuck. The world kind of rallied around it, and all the stuff was stuck, and it could not be disseminated to the people. Why? Because they didn't have gasoline. The roads from the hurricane had just been demolished with trees. Even though the stuff was there, it could still not get out. The same thing happened. I mean, we sent like a Navy hospital ship over there, right? And did you read the story? Three weeks in, no one has still been treated. The hospital ship is out there cruising around and no one is being treated. Why? Because they could not dock it. Now, how do we know that some cosmic sense of this won't happen when it comes to our being changed? On the one hand, God has all of these resources. They're abundant and they're beautiful. How do we know that he will get those resources to us? You see it. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, right before it. I mean, like, it's beautiful. Right before our passage, go up two verses This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Look at verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And then he prays. You hear what Paul is doing? We have access to God. The way has been made by the Lord Jesus Christ He didn't just die to pay for your sins to get you out of hell. He paid for your sins and opened up a path that all that God has will get to you. You get it? That that path and that access and that surety that God's resources will get to God's people, that has been won by Jesus. That's how we know that this cosmic sense of the good stuck at the dock will not work in Christianity. Jesus has won that right. The second thing, well, what then are God's resources? God's resources are not things. They're personal. There's a reason when you want to get in shape, you get a personal trainer. There's a reason when you want to spend money better, you get a financial planner. There's a reason when you want to journey down a path of sobriety, you get sponsors and people who care about you and rally around you. There's a reason when you want to improve your grades, you get a tutor. There's a reason when you want to learn a musical instrument, you get an instructor. There's a reason when you want to plan a wedding, you get a wedding planner or your most organized friend. Do you see the pattern? The pattern here is this, that help and change is always personal. Always personal. And here is the promise that God has made. How will God strengthen your inner man, Christian, that your outward behavior would change? Look at what Paul says. According to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The Holy Spirit is a person. The third person of the Trinity, 
whose witness and ministry is to indwell you and to love you and to encourage you and to bear witness with your soul that you are a son or daughter of the Lord to strengthen you, to help you fight sin and say yes to glory, to bring about repentance in your heart and life. God has given you a person who will dwell with you, who is very God of very God, taking residence inside of you, who wants to glorify the Lord, who wants to obey and who wants to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not out here trying to change alone, Christian. The spirit is in you to help you, to keep you. Notice what else it says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. I love that phrase that, that we're talking about a faith issue of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just knowing facts about him and knowing theology about him. It's about a walking with a real person who loves you and has given you his life for you, who is there for you every moment of every day in good times and bad times, who will never leave you and never forsake you. This is not just knowledge. This is experiencing a relationship with a real person who is committed to you. And I love the language. It says that you might be rooted and grounded. Two images, right, of a, a really big oak tree that has these tap roots that go deep into the ground. And what Paul is saying, the roots of your faith go down into a bedrock of love. You're loved. That you're grounded. It's this idea of a foundation, a strong foundation that you stand on that is not movable, that your roots go down deep into the, the, the love of Christ and the winds might come and the storms might come and the temptations might come, but your roots are so deep in the love of Christ that you're there and you're standing and you're safe. That is your new identity, Christian. Your father loves you. The Son loves you. The Spirit loves you. That if we're thinking about how change begins, it's not with law. It's with love. You're loved. He's shown his love that he would die for you. He's shown his love that he's coming back for you. That there is not one thing that can separate you and I from the love of Christ that we're invited to live out of this place where we are deeply loved by the king. And so when he puts these commandments on us, we will we will suffer and we will struggle. But we're not moving because we're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. It's done. He has sealed you. Love. Change happens when love shows up. Paul Tripp tells a story, a real story about himself. And I, I could really put myself in this story because I've done it. But he tells a story about coming home from work one day and, and on, on his way home, he's worked a long day and 
All he thinks about is his couch and comfort. And so in his mind, he's saying, man, I just cannot wait to get home. I've worked hard. I just want comfort. I'm going to go and sit in my couch and I want comfort. And I want my kids to rush and meet me at the door and kiss me. I want my wife to have the house clean. I want dinner to be done. All I want is comfort. And he walks in and it's the exact opposite. No one greets him at the door. The house is a mess. The kids are fighting. No homework is done. And the food is not being cooked. And he loses it. I mean, he loses it on everybody. And he says, you know what? I got I to gotta repent and redo it. And he says, how, how should this have played out? He said, on the way home, I should have heard and felt the God of comfort assaulting me. And had I listened to the Spirit, the Spirit would have shown me that when you worship comfort, it does not make a good God. That look how worshiping comfort made you treat your family. The real problem is not a filthy house or fighting kids. The real problem is your sin in your own heart. And the Spirit helps him to remember that that's the biggest problem. And the Spirit causes him to remember Christ who laid aside comfort to die, the love and mercy of Christ. The, the Spirit reminds him that comfort didn't do that. The comfort entered the world by leaving glory. The comfort suffered on my behalf. The comfort shed blood to cleanse me. The comfort loved me and died. Has comfort sealed me? Has comfort come and, to, and given me the Holy Spirit? Has comfort promised me an eternity of real comfort and rest? and the Lord and he says no and therefore comfort you can't be a God I have a real God a real Savior and a real spirit who loves me and adores me and who will come back and bring me home with him therefore I can walk into the house and die to comfort because I'm loved by the king and I can serve out of that place of love and I can go back and ask for forgiveness because I've sinned out of a place of love you see what he's saying? Love changes people. That's my prayer and our hope. That the love of Christ. When these commandments come on us, the rest of this series about do this and be this, that you would hear and rest in the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray this would be true for us this morning. Might we taste and get a sense and feel and experience the love of Christ which surpasses understanding? Would you, by your Spirit, sear that upon our hearts that we would never, ever, 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 ever forget that we are loved? Would you do this for your glory? Amen.